is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Felton. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in L.A. Approaching the 4th of July, cookouts, parties, traveling, fun, you know, the the drill. Millions of people across the U.S. will be getting together. They figure, why not? COVID cases are below where they were this winter, and uh, millions of people are vaccinated. Sounds good, but we're not done yet. Millions of people aren't vaccinated, and there's concern the Delta variant could spike out of control. We'll look into the good and the bad moving ahead this summer. And even though almost everything is back to normal, lots of people still worried about resuming pre-pandemic lives, especially those who've recovered from COVID. Let's start with what we can expect coming up this summer. KYW's Carol McKenzie spoke with Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. He broke down the good, the bad and the ugly right now. Okay, so I think there are three things working against this virus. One is summer. SARS-CoV-2 virus is a winter virus. And you certainly saw that last year when the virus came into the U.S. and started killing people at the beginning of March. You know, you got 1,000 deaths a day, 1,500 deaths a day. And then it started to come down. And the numbers were fairly down last year in the summer, even though we had a fully susceptible population. And even though we didn't have a vaccine yet, then it took off, right? October, November, December, 2,000 deaths a day, 3,000 deaths a day, 4,000 deaths a day. Then it started to come down again as we as the weather got warmer. But the numbers are, are much further down this summer than they were last summer because of two things. One, the vaccine. We have about 50% of the population that's now fully vaccinated. That's good. And the other thing is natural infection. I mean, you probably have about 100 million people in this country who've already been naturally infected, which does provide protection against uh, disease associated with re-exposure to the virus. I think there are two things that are working on behalf of this virus that I think worry me. One is that 50% population immunity is not enough. We need a higher percentage than that if we're really going to effectively stop the spread, primarily because this virus continues to mutate and create variants. So these variants, like most recently the Delta variant, I think is going to be a problem. It's clearly more contagious. And the more contagious these variants are, the greater percentage of the population need to have vaccinated. And the second thing that I think works on behalf of the virus, if you will, is the anti-vaccine movement. There is just a solid 25% of this population that refuses to be vaccinated. And what do you do if that's still too big of a percentage that will continue to allow this virus to spread and cause harm? Um, I want to go talk about the, uh, the Delta variant in just a moment. But first, I want to go back to basically what you said about 50% of the population not being enough to, you know, put an end, I guess, to this virus. Um, so what are, I want to revisit herd immunity. That's something we've been talking about this entire time. What are your thoughts on that now? There's actually a formula for what percentage of the population needs to be immune to effectively stop spread of the virus. And it's based on two factors. One is contagiousness of the virus. The more contagious the virus, the greater percentage of the population that has to be vaccinated. And the second issue is vaccine effectiveness, not just effectiveness at preventing severe critical disease. It also has to be highly effective against mild or moderate disease because that also is going to be associated with spread. Vaccine effectiveness is defined as being able to to inoculate somebody, immunize someone so that they're no longer shedding 
spreading virus or contagious if they're then exposed to the virus again. So what's happening is because these viruses now, the variants are, are more contagious. And as a result of that, um, you know, you have vaccines that are very effective against severe critical disease, but not quite as effective as asymptomatic or mild disease. That keeps ratcheting up the number. I think 80 percent is, frankly, the least population immunity that we need for protection. Now, remember, in population immunity, you also get to count natural infection. So I think we can get there. But I think, really, we need to vaccinate another 80 to 100 million people to really effectively stop this virus when winter comes. And that's when we're going to know. We're going to know how well we're doing when winter hits. Because if, we, if we're doing well, there'll just be a bump next winter. If we're not doing well, then there'll be a surge next winter. So we've been vaccinating people since December now. For people who have been sitting on the fence saying, like, I want to see how the people who get the vaccine first, how they're doing, if it's harmful. What have we learned about it? Have there been any harmful side effects from these vaccines? No, I think it's perfectly reasonable. I think you, you, I think you should be skeptical of anything you put into your body, including vaccines, especially vaccines in many ways, because they're given to healthy people for the most part. So that's fair. I mean, Maurice Hilleman, who I consider to be the father of modern vaccines, said it best. He said, quote, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. Well, in terms of the mRNA vaccines, the first 300 million doses are out there. So now you know. Now you know what the safety issue is. And vaccines, like every medical product, can have safety issues. And and both of these vaccines, the mRNA vaccines of Pfizer and Moderna, as well as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, do have very, very rare safety issues. I mean, the case of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, it's uh, it's clotting, so-called thrombotic thrombocytopenic syndrome, which occurs in 1.9 per million vaccinees. So it's obviously extremely rare. You're much more likely to suffer clotting from getting the virus than than from or getting the infection than getting the vaccine. And then the second that's just recently come up is this myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle associated with the mRNA vaccine. Right now, that looks to be an incidence of around one in 50,000. Now, remember, there was just a study done actually um, in among Big Ten athletes that was published in JAMA Cardiology that basically all those athletes, when they got uh, COVID, were then screened to see whether they had any evidence of heart muscle involvement with um, uh, MRI, cardiac MRI. And what they found was that one in 43 had evidence of myocarditis, mostly asymptomatic, but about a third was symptomatic. So it's common. One in 43 people who have COVID-19 who are healthy young people will have evidence for myocarditis as compared to one in 50,000 that get the vaccine. So again, the benefits of the vaccine clearly outweigh the risks, but there's always risks. There's Mm -hmm. risks to take aspirin. There's risks to taking an antibiotic. There's risks to taking anything. The issue in medicine is not whether something is absolutely safe. It's whether or not the benefits of the product clearly and definitively outweigh the risks, which as far as we know for all these vaccines now is true. Do we have any idea about this heart inflammation, Uh, even though you said it's very rare? Do we have any idea why that might be happening? No, I think that that trying to understand the so-called pathogenesis or disease process that has allowed that to occur, I think we'll learn over time. But it is important to note that that uh, the virus also causes uh, myocarditis. And and for for kids, I mean, I work in a pediatric hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. You know, we have uh, we see so-called MIS-C, this multisystem inflammatory disease of children, which. uh, um, if, if, you, if you get that, 75% of those children will have evidence of myocarditis. So there is, um, you know, there's a common virus. And if you want to avoid clotting or you want to avoid uh, uh, myocardial involvement, um, then the best way to do that actually is to get a vaccine.
I want to talk about variants now. You mentioned the Delta variant. It appears to be much more contagious and it makes people sicker faster. The CDC expects it to become the dominant one this summer. What are your thoughts? Is that the one you're most concerned about, too? Are there others out there that are just as bad? I'm sure there will be others out there that are just as bad. I mean, to, to put it in perspective, this is a bat coronavirus. And when it, it, it raised its head in Wuhan and then started sweeping through China, it, it became the first variant. The first variant doesn't have a, uh, a Greek letter designation. It was called D614G. That's the variant that swept through Europe. That's the variant that swept through the United States and killed hundreds of thousands of people and was soon replaced by the next variant, because that's what this virus is trying to do. It's trying to, to adapt itself to growth in people. And to successfully adapt itself, it needs to become more contagious. So that was the, the next one. Now what is called the alpha variant, the, previously the UK variant, that took over in the United States. Now you have the next variant, which is the Delta variant that started in India and now has swept through the United Kingdom. It's now gaining uh, uh, momentum in the United States. And that is a, a little less uh, um, um, susceptible to immunity, at least mild, to protection against mild disease, than was the, 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 uh, the alpha variant. I think we can assume that this is not the last variant we're going to see as this virus continues to adapt. And the only way to stop that is to vaccinate this entire population, at least everyone who can be vaccinated, as quickly as possible to stop spread. Because if the virus continues to spread and is continuing to spread, then it's just going to continue to mutate and to continue to create variants. We need to get vaccinated now. And I think what worries me here is that because the numbers now are fairly low, because it's summer, people are thinking, great, this pandemic is behind us, and it is not behind us. In Springfield, Missouri, they say the Delta variant may be responsible for a six-fold increase in hospitalizations. Vaccination rates in uh, Missouri are very low. What does that mean? I mean, you know, we're not, our borders are not closed. In other words, the, the, the variant's not going to stop at Pennsylvania's border because, you know, we have more people vaccinated. So, you know, what happens there concerns all of us, doesn't it? Absolutely. The more the virus spreads, the more it's going to create variants. I mean, it's not it's, it's not surprising that the, the states or regions that have lower vaccine rates have higher rates of disease, higher rates of hospitalization and higher rates of death. This is something we should have learned 200 years ago with the first vaccine, the smallpox vaccine. Vaccines save lives. And I just am amazed that there is a, a solid 25 percent of our population that simply refuses to get vaccinated. And um I just think we're going to have to deal with that a little more toughly than more in a tougher manner than we are now. And you're seeing that. I mean, the Penn Health System, for example, is mandating vaccines. If you want to work at the Penn, the Penn Health System, you have to get a vaccine, which is fair, because if you're going to work around a vulnerable population of hospitalized people, you owe it to them and to the other staff and to yourself to be vaccinated. What about kids? You know, there's concern about this Delta variant. It seems to affect kids more in the UK. Scientists say it's hitting people 12 to 20, pretty hard. It's been responsible for a couple of hundred outbreaks in educational settings. Um, so when you look at that, you look at people not getting vaccinated and vac vaccination rates among the adolescent population are really low. How do we move through that? And do you think you talked about mandates? Is this something that we're going to have to mandate for kids, uh, you know, maybe 12 to 18 when they're going into school in the fall? 
I think that would certainly be for the for 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 make for better health, both both for the children who attend those schools as well as for everybody who comes in contact with those children. I think that's going to be easy, more easily done in the private sector than in, in the public sector. But I do think it would certainly be a value. You're right. I mean, the immunization rates in the 12 to 18 year old are pretty woeful. And, you know, now hopefully we'll have a vaccine for the six to 12 year old by the end of year or beginning of next year. But we need to, to vaccinate. So this virus is going to be with us for a while. Uh, there's 195 countries in this world, many of which have never given a single dose of vaccine. Uh, think about it. We still give a polio vaccine every year in the United States, even though we haven't had a case of, of polio in, in this country since the late 1970s. We do it because polio still exists in the world and could see easily walk into this country and start an outbreak. So, Think about that for this virus. This virus is going to be with us for a while and children become adults. And, and although keep in mind, children do get sick. I mean, there's been right. at least 4 million children have been infected. There's been at least uh, uh, 40,000 or so that have been hospitalized. There's been at least 300 who have been killed. That, that's in, in line with other viruses for which we have vaccines like influenza, measles. Uh, and others, chicken pox. So I, I do think there is clearly value in vaccinating children. Well, and the CDC just said the rates of COVID-19 associated hospitalization among adolescents exceeded historical rates for for flu during comparable periods. This was in March and April. Um, and yet, you know, some parents are concerned about safety. There is still that idea that kids don't really get that sick. The FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, which you are on, you recently had a meeting to discuss the data you need to see from Pfizer and Moderna in order to recommend full approval for kids. And I I wonder if you could talk about that process a little bit, because I feel, you know, some people have this idea that these are, quote, experimental or they're just kind of being thrown out there willy nilly because it's a pandemic. And I'm wondering if you can give us an idea, a little insight into what you and what your fellow committee members are looking for here. It's certainly not experimental at this point. I mean, so, for example, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the rotavirus vaccine, which is a, a sort of intestinal virus that causes dehydration in, in young children. But it's a, it's a vaccine for babies. I mean, it's given by mouth at two, two, four and six months of age. What we didn't have then when we were doing those trials, but what we do have now for this va- vaccine is an enormous wealth of data in adults and and young adults and older adolescents. So, you know, you're not flying blind here. There's an enormous sort of portfolio of safety and efficacy for these vaccines. And as we de-escalate and work our way down, we've gone initially down to the 16-year-old, now we're down to the 12-year-old. And the question is, how much data did we need? And when we talked about this at the FDA, how many hundreds or thousands of children need to be vaccinated before we feel comfortable, remembering that children are at risk. If I had to give the the best reason for why I think children should be vaccinated, it's this multi-system inflammatory disease, which occurs primarily between six and 14 years of age, at median about nine years of age. These kids are sick. They come in with high fever, evidence of lung disease, heart disease, liver disease, kidney disease. Some of them have have long-term problems. I mean, this, this virus is not what it was claimed to be. When it came out of China, it was billed as a winter respiratory virus like influenza. And like influenza could cause pneumonia and could cause fatal pneumonia. It's far more than that. This virus has the capacity to make you react against your the, the lining of your own blood vessels. And because every organ in your body has a blood supply, every organ is at risk. I don't know of any other respiratory virus that does this. This is a heinous virus. And I think the quicker that we can stop the spread, the better off we'll be, including children. What do you think fall is going to look like? 
I think when we hit late fall, meaning October, November, I think you're going to see a surge in cases. I think it'll primarily be in those areas that are, are unvaccinated or undervaccinated. I think, again, you'll see a thousand deaths a day, 2000 deaths a day. I think you'll see increase in hospitalizations because we just have not learned the lesson that you, you need to vaccinate a higher percentage of the population that's currently vaccinated. I don't know what else the Biden administration can do. I mean, you know, they're, they're trying, they're doing everything they can for incentives. They certainly solve two of the biggest problems coming out of the last administration, which is they figured out how to mass produce the vaccine. And they essentially set up something we didn't have in, in public health in this country, which is a, a ability to mass administer the vaccine to adults. We've done that. Now we've hit a wall. And that wall is basically an anti-vaccine sentiment in this country that puts us all at risk. I, I, the, the one that bothers me the most, actually, just because you know, I'm a sports fan, but when Cole Beasley, who's, who's a, 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 a professional football player said that that with the NFL director he's decided not to be vaccinated and and he doesn't like it that he's being asked to mask if he's not vaccinated he doesn't like that he said look if you if you don't like it just don't come near me but see he 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 offers the classic anti-vaccine trope which is what do you care whether or not I vaccinate because you're vaccinated which makes two false uh, assumptions. One, that vaccines are 100% effective, which isn't true. There's still people who have breakthrough illness who can be hospitalized and die from this virus, even though they've been vaccinated. And two, there's a significant percentage of people in this country who can't be vaccinated. They can't be vaccinated because they're getting chemotherapy for their cancers or biological agents for their chronic diseases. They depend on those around them to protect them. And when people like Cole Beasley say, says, you know, I don't want to get this vaccine, it's an enormously selfish thing to do. It's not a personal decision. It's a decision he's also making for other people. And it shouldn't be his right to make that decision for other people. Do you think we're going to be need uh, boosters? And do you have any idea like when we could need them? So if you look at the the immune response that's induced both by natural infection and by immunization with either the mRNA vaccines or these vectored virus vaccines like the J&J or AstraZeneca vaccine, the the cellular, so-called cellular immune response that's evoked, so-called T-cells, helper T-cells, cytotoxic T-cells, looks to be vigorous enough that I would expect that immunity would last at least against severe critical disease for a few years. So if you draw the line at preventing hospitalization, preventing ICU admission, preventing death, I would think we would need a booster every few years, but I I wouldn't think we'd need it yearly. Again, we don't know. We're certainly following that. The CDC is looking at hospitalizations in people who've been previously uh, vaccinated or naturally infected to see what strains they're infected with and to see whether that starts to increase, in which case we would need boosters sooner. But I would predict every three to five years. Dr. Offit, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Coming up after this short break, people are having a tough time getting back to normal. After more than a year of lockdowns and seeing and hearing about people getting sick and dying, a return to normal has been difficult for many people. Lots of those people had COVID. They're a little nervous about resuming life as they knew it. Uh, KYW medical editor Dr. Brian McDonough sees patients who've recovered from the virus. They're now dealing with the long-term effects and frustrations. And he was with Carol talking about moving ahead. You know, it's so individual for each person. But if I was going to say things that I've seen as a common thread, the first thing I would say is there's a general feeling of, is this too good to believe? In other words... I really still want to wear my mask in a restaurant or I really think I'm hesitant about going out. I'm still worried that maybe what happened to a family member could happen to me because it has hit people on so many individual levels. The second thing is, and I think you really, you really say it well, is that there's people who know they have 
had personal loss and they don't want that to be forgotten. You know, there's a sense of guilt in the sense, like, why did I make it and another person not? Or why did I get through this and other people have other severe symptoms because it's so random in how it attacked. And then there's the last factor, which is there's still people in denial who even question, did it really happen? Despite all the overwhelming facts, they're looking at it as, oh, is this some sort of conspiracy or something? So you've got all these different approaches to things. You know, as a physician, we just look at the science and the facts and what happened and and, and try to move from there. When it comes to, so we're, you know, far enough out from this pandemic now where you must be treating people who had COVID. And I'm wondering what you're seeing, what health effects they're suffering, because we keep hearing of these different things that people are coming down with, uh, not just long haulers, but in some case, long haulers, that people are dealing with stuff months out what are you seeing and and how is the medical community handling these different things? Well, I can tell you one thing that we're starting to see from the medical community perspective is already I'm starting to see articles appearing where I can read and learn, you know, people's paths and also even coursework. There are now courses being offered to physicians to explain how to treat some of the long-term impact of COVID because we're starting to see that. So I think that on the medical you know, educational side, we're already seeing that. But from a pure person, person level, here's the issue. We think about a virus. Many of the symptoms can be vague for a virus. Mm. So the severe issues are easy to recognize and they're tough to deal with. The things such as breathing issues, the heart irregularities, those neurologic issues, those big things are, are a big problem for a, a certain group. But then the next group are those that are getting headaches, fatigue, cloudiness in their memory, or they feel that they're just uh, suffering from anxiety and or depression. Those types of things, that's where I think the frustration is for the patients. They're going, okay, well, why am I having these headaches? Can you explain to me, doctor, why? You know, I have to say, well, we're starting to see it in people who have had COVID. Here's how we're going to treat it. Well, you know, deep down, they want to know, well, why? <laughs> why did this happen? And we don't have a lot of those answers. I can explain some things, but some of these things have just happened, and it's a concern. That's And that's the, you know, you want to call a virus diabolical. That's the diabolical aspect of this virus. So a big focus right now is on getting vaccinated, and the numbers, unfortunately, the, the rate, the vaccination rate has slowed pretty dramatically, and there's a fairly large segment of people who are choosing not to get vaccinated. The reasons, you know, are different, perhaps, for some, it's political. For some, it's they feel like it's, quote-unquote, experimental, or they just want to wait to see what happens with the people who have gotten it. And so I'm wondering if you talk to, you know, if you're hearing a lot of this from your patients, and how do you talk to people who are still on the fence about getting vaccinated? Well, I'm first of all, I try to be very understanding, and I, and I try to say, listen, I understand your hesitancy, and I want to respect your choice. And then I actually will say, you notice what I'm seeing you, because I'm wearing a mask in a clinical setting, I'm wearing a mask. And the reason I'm wearing a mask has very little to do with me. I've been vaccinated and I'm very comfortable that I'm not going to end up in an ICU or die. I can't say the same for you. And I'm wearing the mask for you. So I want you to understand you can make your choice about a vaccine, but think about the dynamic here. 
I am doing all I can to protect you because you're vulnerable. I don't know why you choose to be vulnerable, but you're vulnerable and this could kill you. But I also look at it the same way as when I talk to someone about a smoking habit. You know, I say, here's what can happen. I'm hoping for you that the percentages are on your side. (laughs) I hope that happens. But when I look at the big picture, I don't necessarily guarantee that you're going to get through this. And I just have that conversation. And then I say, listen, think about it. And I've had people choose to get the vaccine in their own time. I've also uh, have had people say, no, I totally disagree with you. And for whatever reason, and I say, okay, I, I, I can only tell you what I can to help. And, and I think that's the way we, we have to approach it. I think if you get into the into an argument or become aggressive, I, I don't think that helps. And I also think, yes, we know that the more people get vaccinated, the better it is for everyone. There's no doubt about that. It's, it's part of a social contract. But, it, you know, if you're not going to do it for others, really selfishly do it for yourself. Dr. McDonough, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. And and hopefully, you know, we've seen the worst of it and we'll get through this. But thanks for having me on. So two men in Australia, they thought they were being sneaky. They weren't supposed to go out to a beach in the Sydney area. This is because of the COVID-19 lockdowns. But they went anyway. But it wasn't just any beach. It was a nude beach. So they were there in the bear when a wild deer came by and startled them. So the two men, they they ran into the National Park. They got lost. (laughs) Emergency crews found one man naked. The other was only partially clothed. They were fined for breaking COVID rules, and this caught people's attention on social media. The New South Wales opposition leader tweeted, a good reminder, a COVID health breach results in a very deer fine. D-E-E-R. Yeah, yeah, well... They, they clearly have an odd sense of humor in Australia. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.